0: There are not many I think might be in the running for something sung in heaven, but I think that one might get there. It's straight out of Revelation, so it seems to me that it might just be the actual song of the redeemed or something. You know, the the Lord says, hey, Mike, uh, we have a really cool piano for you to play. Would you sit down over there? And Henry, uh, you know, I know you thought you had a really nice guitar, but we have one for you to try. Imagine the Lord setting up the band and saying, okay, just enjoy yourselves. We're going to do the Revelation song. I like your version so much better than Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Sorry, Philip, Craig, Dean. As we get started today... um, some of you may have gotten a, uh, an insert in your bulletin with uh, the blanks to fill in for today if you'd like. Uh, if you didn't, the deacons have some, and if you'd raise your hand, they're just in the back looking for a hand that might need one if you want one. Um, there's one up here, guys, and you'll have to look for the others. There's another one out here on the front. I um, haven't done uh, filling in the blanks in a while, and uh, I liked it when we were doing it. I might go back to it. We'll see how you see how you all like it. Have you ever thought about the idea of living from your heart? When you say that, what does that mean to you? For some of us, that's a little bit terrifying. For those of us who like to be a little more calculated and exact in all the things that happen, we like our we like our box. We like things to stay in our box. We like to keep things pretty straightforward. We have an outline for each day. We want a script. That makes us a little stressed. Those people who live from their heart look a little bit. Uh, I don't know, frightening to us. They, they look a little sketchy. They're, they're living out there, out loud, in front of the whole world as if that's what's normal. And we just know it's not. Those of you who live normally out of your heart, when you just, you know, the things that come to you are, are coming out of you. That the experiences of the day are truly touching you. You, you, you kind of speak the words that you feel are, are, the, are the ones reaching you and touching you. They come out. As they go in, and that you you live in this sort of a on this edge that is not so so cut and so dry. Yours kind of travels with the wind, and it kind of moves with the moment, and you you live this experience that's that's a little different. and 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 for for those of you who do that, you know the world's a tougher place. You. You don't, you don't go prepared into each step and, and so when some anxiety comes or some harshness comes at you, it seems to strike you a little harder. And, and I, I think when the, when the Bible calls us to live from our heart, it calls us to live somewhere between those two versions. It calls us to live somewhere in the middle between that exacting, outline, directed, in a box sort of a day, and somewhere between that whatever comes into my mind, comes out of my mouth uh, kind of person, somewhere in between. And, And maybe we would call it living from the transformed heart or living from the Holy Spirit guided heart or living from a full heart, heart full not by us, but full with the Holy Spirit and full with God. Living from an expression of what It means to follow God. Today I want to talk a little bit about that as we continue in Matthew chapter 6. Now, we've been looking at the at at Matthew 5 and 6 the last couple of weeks. Actually, and and the week before that, Tim was actually in the same portion of Scripture. So the last three weeks, we've been looking at these tracts of Scripture, this place. And as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, this sermon that Jesus pronounced. Remember, he goes up on the hill like Moses and he sits down like a king and he draws the disciples around him like a court and then he begins to speak. And as he, as he begins this process, this, it's a very specific thing he's doing. He's resetting religion on the earth. As Moses reset, reset religion in the Jewish community, From Mount Sinai, as God shook the earth and blew smoke out of the top of Mount Sinai like it was a volcano, as God reset spirituality and religion in the people of Israel at Sinai, so Moses or so so now Jesus at this Mount of Beatitudes speaks into the lives of the people and begins to reset the way they think about religion. As we, uh, as we track with this, I want to remind you of the, of Jesus' three points. This is how you know it's a sermon, because it's got three points. Jesus' three points in the sermon. The, at the, at the beginning of this passage, this section, he sort of summarizes what he said in the Beatitudes, and he begins to project what's coming. He establishes his key moment, his key thought, when he says, your religion must be better than that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, you and I just look at that and go, yeah, well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't get it. But for first century Jews, these are the superstars of spirituality. This is like saying you have to throw the ball better than Joe Montana to even today. You have to be able to be uh, the the best of the best of the best. You have to, to rise above those who are spiritually superstars. When Jesus speaks this to the crowd, the crowd's gasp tells the story. How in the world could we possibly do that? How could we ordinary people ever even find the time to be more religious, more spiritual, to have a better walk with God than these guys? These guys dedicate every day of their life, all of their time to this. They don't understand. But Jesus says, your religion, if you're going to follow me, must be better than the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The practitioners of the law and the writers of the law. Number two, caught it there at the end of chapter five as he was wrapping up what rung we stand on spiritually. At the end of chapter five, verses 44 and 48, you can read the passage in between if you'd like. Love your enemy and so be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. What is, the, what is the real measure of perfection in the earth? Learning to love your enemy. It's, it's, it's not all the things they think it is. You see, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees had thought they'd figured it out. Paul himself, speaking of being a Pharisee of Pharisees, said, "Man, I I had this thing down. I was sure I had it. And if you've read chapter five, this section right before Jesus raises the standard of behavior, the the, the Pharisees had had measured down the rules till something they could achieve. They had they had laid the rules down to a to a level that they could step into that they could achieve, and Jesus." Raises it up to the top rung of the ladder. And he says, everything that you do has to be perfect. And he leaves the Pharisees not measuring up either. And so the crowd has just heard, let your religion be better than the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They don't measure up. In fact, if you want to measure up, behave like God. Learn even to love your enemy. So now the crowd is completely disoriented. Everything they understood of how they were supposed to practice their religion has just been kind of washed away. It's been thrown out. It, the things that they are expected to do, according to what Jesus is saying, are, are out of their reach. They're at a rung higher than they have ever imagined themselves achieving. And so Jesus now comes back to religious practice. He comes back to the three things that are common as as the practices of religion that are transformational to your heart. He comes back to the three things that make a difference, make an impact, that transform who you are. Here are the practices. He's going to talk about giving to the poor. He's going to talk about prayer. And he's going to talk about fasting. These three religious practices that the Pharisees had set an example in, Jesus is going to take them and show a different way. So today, I want to ask you, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting, are these things transformational in your life? Are they touching you? Are they reaching you? Are they impacting you at all? Are they practices that you're involved with? I think the modern world has kind of pushed these things aside and we've lost these practices as normal and normative to Christianity. So let's look at them with Jesus. We're not going to look at the whole text today. This is where you'll see a word that's in caps and underlined. That's going to fill in the blanks. Good deeds go bad when our motivations are wrong. That make sense? You can be right without being righteous correct you can do good things for bad reasons right in fact manipulation and lying looks best when accompanied by certain sort of sanctimonious behaviors if you look pious doing things well then people sort of trust you more if you if you if you your outward appearance is one of someone who can be trusted then people will kind of extend some of that trust to you And then you can really get ahead with someone. Then you can really steal. Then you can really get get your way in the world just by looking on the outside like you're pretty good. Jesus said it this way. Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. He goes on to describe this. He says, don't be like those who blow the trumpet before they give alms. Don't be like those who blow the trumpet before they give to the poor. Now, now the, one, of the, one of the excuses for blowing the trumpet was, I'm going to blow the trumpet so the poor can come. It's like a call to gather. You, you poor folks, come. I'm blowing the trumpet. I, I have something for you. Okay, you come. Think about demeaning that would be. To have to run to the trumpet call of some rich person so that they could hand out their handout to you. Jesus said, don't be like these people who blow the trumpet to get attention to give their alms. In fact, he says, don't let your right hand or your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's an interesting phrase. The the the, the poor box the box given for folks who are poor was on the right-hand side of the entrance to the sanctuary. So there's maybe a real physical description when the disciples talk about or see this, when he says, not letting one hand know what the other hand is doing, that the right hand is the hand as you would normally drop that gift into the poor box, doing it so subtly, doing it so quietly, doing it so out of the out of the norm of the lifestyle so that no one even knows you've done it. Even your own left hand doesn't see your right hand Drop that offering and It's supposed to be subtle. It's supposed to be something that only you and God know about it. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because good deeds go bad when your motivations are wrong. Matthew 6, 2 and 3. Therefore, when you do charitable deeds, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. So why is somebody blowing the trumpet here? Because they want people to look at them. They want you to see what a gracious person they are. Oh, look at me. I have just reached out out of my beneficence and touched the lives of these poor slobs. Right? Right? Look how good I am. Jesus said if you're calling attention to yourself for your goodness, you've gotten your reward. The re- the reward you wanted was attention. You got that, okay. Move along, because that's all you got. That's all you have because your heart's not in it. Your heart's not in it. So let's stop it. Let's let's back up the truck and let's talk about our giving. Let's talk about it, not just giving to our poor to the poor, but let's talk about our giving in general. How's your heart connected with your giving? Are you doing okay? Let me ask you, let me ask you the, the, the great American question. Would you still be giving if the IRS didn't give you a tax write-off? It's a real question, isn't it? Would, how would the IRS changing its rules affect your giving? Would it? Would you be giving if no one knew? Now we kind of, in our church, we kind of keep this as, a, as the rule, right? The, the treasurer, the, the two treasurers really are the only ones who know what is given. I don't know. Are you good with that? Would you like it if we published a list of the 10 best givers every year? Would you like it if we published a list of the 10 worst givers every year? Would you like if we publish a list of the non-givers every year? How would all this fit into your life? How would it affect your heart? How would it affect you? Would would, Would it change your pattern? Would the publication of a list be so good or so negative that it would change your pattern? You see, what Jesus is saying is when you're giving your alms to the poor, and he's using this as an example because of the way it's done, but you can extrapolate it to the rest of what we do. When you give, are you giving your heart with your gift, or are you just doing it for some other reason? Doesn't Jesus really get to meddling a lot in this sermon? You know, last week he was all over us, and this week he's back in our kitchen again. And he's looking across the table saying, Are you giving from your heart or are you giving from your wallet? Are you giving from your heart or are you giving to show off? Why well, are you doing this? What is your motivation? Is this a right, righteous act? Or is it something else? Moving right along. Even I'm starting to sweat. Prayer is never show and tell. Prayer is never show and tell. Have you ever been to a church, where, or, or any place actually, where the person who was praying, you could tell, was there to show you how awesome they were at it? They get up, and you know, you talk to them normally, and they have a normal sort of pattern of living and life, and, and, and the way they speak, and, and suddenly you hand them a mic, and their voice lowers a couple of octaves, and they begin to speak in King James English only. Oh, thou who inhabitest the heavens. Oh, thank you, Sam. You know what I mean? They have this normal way, and and when they start to pray, it's not like a conversation between somebody they know and are acquainted with and and their friend. It becomes a demonstration of their ability to do this. You see, one of the weird things that would go on with these guys is When they prayed, they would do all kinds of interesting things as well. Standing in the synagogues. So the synagogue wasn't a bad place to pray. You could pray in church, right? But they're not just praying in their corner in the church. They're not just going over to their seat and and praying. They're not even going over to their seat and kneeling down. They're taking a posture in the church where they can be seen. It would be like somebody standing up in the middle of service and beginning to pray out loud. You would take your, your garment and you would cover your head... And then you would begin your prayer and you would just do it nice and loud so everybody in the church could hear you. Would you think that was weird? It was pretty common practice in the first century. They go to the corners. This is an interesting phrase. They they go onto the corners of the streets. Um, It it looks like they kind of go over in a corner. The idea is they go to the intersection of two major streets and they pray there. They make sure that they're there at that intersection at the hour of prayer so that they can pray in front of the folks who pass by. It's extremely pious if you can get caught in the middle of the street while praying. The hour of prayer, the trumpet blows, and you stop in the middle of the street, you pull your, 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 your coverings over your head, and you block traffic for the next, oh, five or ten minutes. You can irritate the Romans... And all you're doing is practicing your religion. It's such a pious way to be an irritant. Everybody in town has to stop what they're doing till you're done praying. And those unholy folks who don't regularly pray are stopped and and you think to yourself, maybe they'll actually pray because I've stopped them. You know, they were going to blow right through the hour of prayer and just keep going about their business. And those filthy Romans, I've at least stopped them for a moment so they're not overrunning our people and their spirituality. We don't usually do this. Prayer in America is usually a pretty private thing. There is the occasional person who takes that mic in their hand, but for most of us, this is a pretty private thing. This is our regular practice for us to, when we do it, and that's our lack. See, I think most of the first world's problem with prayer is not overly pious behavior. It's silence. I think for us, this would be changed to if you pray, not when you pray. Because most of us have trouble stopping. And maybe we would need one of those guys to step out into the street in front of the traffic to stop us, to remind us to pray. I don't know how we change this. I don't, I don't know how we change it. But we need to change it. We need to get back to being people who pray on a regular basis. We need to get to a place where prayer is like breathing to us. That we just do it as a matter of fact, a matter of life. We need to be in a place where our walk with God just moves and breathes in our prayer where it becomes so ordinary and so normal to us that we're praying about things all the time, just in the moment. We're praying before we step into the room where we're going to see someone. We're praying before we go to an appointment. We're praying before we start a next project. We're praying before we leave the house. We're praying when we return. We're praying when our kids are there. We're praying when our kids are coming. We're praying for our kids. We're praying for our parents. We're praying about everything in our lives because it's the lifeblood. It is like breathing to your spiritual life. It is so much. Prayer is never supposed to be show and tell, but it's supposed to be. So I want to challenge us to be in more of an active life of prayer. Find somebody to help you with this. Find somebody to hold you accountable, not your spouse. That'll just make you irritated. Find somebody else who can irritate you without it being so personal. And help them hold you and you hold them to the practice of prayer. It's transformative. The only thing more transformative than prayer is Bible study. Those two things are so much the lifeblood of our spirituality. In the first century, it was about show and tell. And Jesus said, look, guys, your prayers have to be quiet in the closet by yourself. Just you and me. Not out in the street." so that everyone can see, because if you do it out in the street, so that everyone can see, you've already received your reward, because what you really wanted was to be seen. And he carries forward. He talks about fasting. Fasting is between you and God. So the idea is if everybody today was fasting, nobody would know. None of us would know if there was fasting going on right next to us right now. Jesus' description of it is when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites who, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. He says, when you're going to be fasting, comb your hair, dress right, get out and just, just go about your normal life. Because your spiritual life is not about being seen by men. It's about being in connection with God. I bring it all to us today, and I I recognize our gaps. I recognize my gaps. I recognize that I get too busy to pray. What a crazy idea that is. I get so busy with the things that are going on in my life, I stop praying altogether. I start to worry about things instead of praying about those things. And I start thinking about what I might do about those things instead of what God might do about those things. And I tap into all the power I have and I neglect tapping into the ultimate power of the universe. I fast between breakfast and lunch. (laughs) Once in a while, all the way to dinner. The, The Pharisees were in a regular habit. Every week, fasting one or two days in that week. What would happen to us, besides the fact that I would lose some weight, what would happen to us if this became a regular pattern in our life? What if Tuesdays were just fasting days? We said, okay, Tuesday, we survive on water. Now, if you want, you can fast during the day and eat at night. It was a fairly common practice to do that, that you would not eat until dinnertime and you would, you would say, say, I'm fasting until sundown. Now, for, for the Jewish mindset, from sundown the night before when you went to bed, you hadn't eaten until sundown the next day. That was a 24-hour period. So you can kind of count that if you'd like. And so that's how they would do it. They would fast until sundown. They wouldn't have dinner. They wouldn't overeat because the worst thing you do after fasting is overeat because then you're going to be uncomfortable. But what if that became our practice? How about if we try it this week? Now, I, I, if, if there, you have a medical condition, please, Talk to your doctor. I feel like I'm having a commercial break right now. (laughs) Talk to your doctor about this. But for the rest of us who don't, what if we decided this week, we picked a day and we said, I'm going to go to bed the night before and I'm not eating while I sleep. And I'm going to fast until that next evening. It seems normal today, right now, because sundown's so early, right? It's it's a great time of year to start practicing. Because sundown's nice and early, you can still eat dinner about 6.30 and live. What would it do to our spiritual walk? How would it challenge us? Do you think fasting would remind you to pray? When I fast, that's what happens to me. Because the hunger is ever-present and reminds me of the need to pray. It's interesting how those two work. My stomach tells my head, oh, it's time to pray. Can't eat? Pray. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to give it a try this week? Tuesday? Yeah. Tuesday? <laughs> okay, Tuesday. Tuesday. Tuesday is official fast day. Yes? yes. Tuesday. Are you in? Yes. Tuesday. I'll give you a topic to pray for. Tuesday? Prayer, fast... For what's going on with the next phase of our building. Whatever happens. Whatever God wants to do. I don't care how you pray about it. Pray about how God wants to do it. Tuesday. This Tuesday? This Tuesday? Yes? Okay. 12 of us. I got like 12 people going, yeah, I'm in for that. And then the rest were like, mm. I got meetings on Tuesday. I can't be hungry that day. I don't want to be the angry guy at the meeting. Try Wednesday then. Would it be good? Would it be different? Would the practice of these things change who we are? We do not have enough regular, this word is going to be a little hard, rituals in our spiritual walk. Israel was called to come to Jerusalem five times a year to celebrate rituals to remind them of their relationship with God. They began to learn practices of their daily walk that helped them to make sure that they were staying in contact, staying in regular relationship with God. What are your practices? What are the things you're doing? There are lots of ways. I, right now, um, you version has become my friend. I just, what we've, we've been engaged, Brenda and I and another family in the church, engaged in reading through the Bible. <clears throat> and every morning, that thing pops up on my phone and reminds me, hey, time to do your devotional. We're reading this today. And it's great because I can just put it on audio and I can listen to it. It's, you know, I can shave while I'm listening and I can do other things or I might even actually stop what I'm doing and read it. What are you doing to put practice into your life? What are the things that are calling your heart back to God day after day? After day, Jesus is saying, don't do it so other people can see you. That's not right. But do it so that I can connect with you. Do it so that we have a relationship. Do it so that your walk is, is regular. Do it so that the iron is being sharpened every day as you walk with me. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. This, my friends, is a first world text. Isn't it? How much is enough? One of the great things, I I don't know if you have been involved with the Dave Ramsey material or not, one of the great things in the Dave Ramsey material is actually in the second phase. The first one is about debt elimination and, and getting your, fa- your financial house in order. And if you haven't done it, you should do it. If this church, if your relationship with God and, your imp- and the impact of this thing could just change one thing in your life and make you debt-free for the rest of your life, the blessings of God will be poured out on you like you've never thought. Amen. Can you imagine not having debt? Yep. If you can't imagine it, you really need to go to this class. It will be huge. The second one is called Legacy Journey. And one of the most important questions asked in this particular class, and it's coming up here in a a few weeks, a few months, one of the most important questions asked is how much is enough? At what point would you be content? Across the street from us is an insurance building. The owner of that building actually lives in Fremont. Um, we talked a long time ago about buying that building. I, I still sometimes think we should have because I, what we were hoping to do was buy that building, turn it into a place where the, um, the, the mothers around our neighborhood, especially that was our target audience, could come, sit, have a hot drink, chat while someone else watched their kids because across the street over there is HUD housing, up around the corner over there is HUD housing, back by the park is HUD housing, and it's heavily populated by young women with little children and no husbands. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to to build a little community spot where they could just come, someone would watch the little tyrant for a couple hours, and they could talk to another grown-up. You know? Just, Just chat. Just have Normal conversation Dream for later, you think about it if God donates a, if, if God pays off the building and gives us an extra eight hundred or a million something we 'll buy the building and that 's what we'll do that's tuesday 's prayer, maybe. But when I was talking to the owner, sorry for the trip. When I was talking to the owner about the building, he was, he was thinking about building a restaurant there and he has a restaurant in Fremont. Anyway, he, he said a very profound thing. He said, I decided not to build a restaurant here because I had to ask myself, how much is enough? The restaurant in Fremont's doing well. It takes care of my family. I'm able to be a blessing to other people. I'm good. This would create a lot more work and a lot more money. But do I really need more? And I think the question of laying up for yourself treasure, what that treasure looks like, even how much that treasure is, is a question about what it means to you to have enough, what it means to you to be content. And it's different for all of us. Some of us are content with less than others of us would be content with. And nobody gets to decide how much someone else should be content with. We simply need to ask ourselves, what would be good? Where would I be good? And the overflow beyond that is a gift from God to bless someone else. Once once your cup is full, once your cup of contentment is full, beyond that cup is an overflow from God to bless someone else. Isn't that a cool idea? Once I know where that contentment level is, I'm no longer working for me. I'm working for an opportunity to be a blessing. Wouldn't that be a change of mind? Wouldn't that be a cool change of thinking? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because mobs are coming in and rust is going to destroy, thieves are going to break in and steal. Instead, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where they're good, they're protected, they're permanent. Lay up treasures in heaven. Now, Jesus did not call everyone in the earth to a vow of poverty. It's absolutely true. He often speaks of blessing you, blessing people, pouring out his blessings on you to in such a way that you're not even able to hold them, right? That's what Malachi 3's promise is. If you, if you give me your tithes, test me in this thing and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you cannot contain. So clearly, he's not saying all of you guys should live under a bridge. But we have to decide how much is enough. And once we're good, we're working to bless someone else and laying up treasure in heaven. What a cool change of venue for the way we go about our business. So if you went to those two classes and you ended debt, think about that. If you were no longer just really working to pay somebody else, right? Because that's, that's what debt does to us. It makes us a slave to somebody who we owe money to. Working to pay off our debt. And we were just content. We got to that point of contentment. And every day we went to work so we might be a blessing. What an amazing difference that would be. When you walked into your office. Or you walked into your business. Or you walked into, grabbed your paintbrush or your trowel. When you started your job every day. Working to be a blessing to someone else. And Jesus' final point in this section is for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you treasure? Stop and think about the people you treasure. I have five little grandkids. I treasure that whole generation. And my heart is there. Right? Right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I have told you this story before, but I was a young pastor. I was actually an intern. I hadn't been to seminary yet. I had just finished college. I was barely Adventist. I was completely unconverted. But I was convinced. The pastor and I had a passing conversation. It was, it was when uh, these microphones were very expensive compared to the average income. And uh, we needed one for our local church. And a guy who came to our church occasionally, I would say fairly regularly, donated the money to buy a new microphone. And the pastor, when this event happened, and we were talking about it, it's like, wow, this guy doesn't even come to our church much, but he, he donated all this money so we could have this microphone. And the pastor, this, he's much more senior than I, he'd been in the ministry for 30, 40 years, turns to me and he says, we're going to baptize him soon. I'm thinking, he doesn't even attend regularly. What do you mean when want to baptize him soon? He goes, no, 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 no. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's just shown us his hand. He's here. He just hasn't made the final commitment yet. That's what's true about us. That our hearts are revealed by the things we love. So the final question today is what things are you treasuring and how are they affecting your relationship with God are you treasuring your prayer time are you treasuring the opportunity to give and bless and help someone else are you treasuring your walk with God and your rituals with him your your regular time alone what are you treasuring Are you treasuring your business? Are you treasuring that last line on the bottom of the spreadsheet that comes out to zero? Or comes out to plus? Are you treasuring your time, your job, yourself, your status? Where your treasure is? Your heart follows. Be very thoughtful about where you're keeping your treasure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's it's a little tough, frankly, to go through the sermon of Jesus here. Because it's oh so personal. We recognize that Jesus set the rung of religious achievement far above the head of the Pharisees and far above ours. And a call for us to come to him each day. Seek his guidance, his blessing, and surrender ourselves to him. And Lord, this challenge for our heart to be in our faith. We ask your forgiveness when we've just done it without actually having our heart in it. We've practiced unrighteous religion. When we prized being right over being compassionate and loving and like Jesus. The days we've forgotten to pray. The days we've forgotten you were there. The days when we've given of our money, but not our heart. Father, we pray that you would take our hearts and soften them. That you would break up the stoniness and replace it with flesh. Take us in your hands and you would mold us and fashion us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray for conversion and transformation. That we would stand for you in our world. Be a light in the darkness. Be a fragrant offering in a difficult place. Pray for your spirit. In Jesus' name.